Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati, in this week for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're joined by a Republican state assemblywoman from one of the most purple areas of California. That's right. Suzette Martinez-Valadares is in her first term in the legislature representing parts of Los Angeles and Ventura counties. We'll ask her about her family's long history in the state and how things are going in Sacramento as the legislature heads into their summer recess. But first, Guy, it's uh, two months, T-minus two, two months. Start until your clock. That's right. Start your clock. Well, let's talk about the Newsom team before we talk about there are there are some new candidates this week that we're going to mull over. But, you know, with only a month till these ballots go out, it seems like the biggest threat, given the polling we've seen, given the state of the state, um, besides, you know, a, a terrible all consuming wildfire or whatever, is sort of whether Democrats are aware of this recall and come out to support Newsom, right? I mean, I think that there is an argument that folks who oppose Newsom are pretty motivated. Um, but I got to wonder, like, if you're not us, if you're not doing this job guy, have you even heard about this recall? Like, no, if you're an average person? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a open question. And Again, voting is going to start in the middle of August in the dog days of summer. I'm interested to see how he uses it to drive turnout because the message that we've heard a lot from Newsom to his supporters, if you look at kind of the fundraising emails his campaign sends out, it's been really almost painting the picture of a one-on-one race between him and Caitlyn Jenner, which doesn't make <laughs> a lot of sense statistically. There hasn't been polling or anything to show that she's necessarily a front runner, but it's clear that's part of their strategy to make this about, you know, Newsom versus Trumpist elements. And Jenner is a candidate who has ties to Trump. Obviously, a referendum on the former president is good news for Democrats in the state. But I, I do wonder about the turnout because obviously fear was a big motivator to get Democrats out to vote against Trump. Are voters really scared of a, a Caitlyn Jenner governorship or is that enough to get people to the polls? So that I'll be watching, you know, the ground game. I think that's where it becomes really important and how organized labor gets involved, right? Reminding voters, going door to door, knocking, telling people, look, you're going to get this ballot in the mail mid-August. You're going to have until September 14th to vote. I think that's really going to be key to watch in the next couple months. You also wonder how motivated the other side will be. I mean, not the hardcore folks who are out there collecting signatures, but I do think that there's some open questions about motivation on both sides of the aisle, right? I mean, you have have a very different situation, even with COVID spiking in some areas of the state. You know, it's very different. Things are opened up. Kids are set to go back to school next month. You know, there's a stimulus checks arriving in people's bank accounts today if they're parents from the federal government. A huge budget passed this week with a lot of help for a lot of 
folks. So I think it's going to be a challenge, honestly, on both sides to get people to pay attention. Um, obviously, the Democrats have a registration advantage and, you know, just the, the leaning left leaningness of the state. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think, you know, it, it, it it'll be um, interesting. And then and I also got to wonder, and I'm not sure this will matter because we've been so sort of attached to vote by mail in California for a long time. But I do wonder about all of, you know, how it's going to affect this national conversation we're having around voting rights and, you know, voter fraud on, you know, on the right, if that impacts any of this, because to your point, everyone is going to get a ballot, they're going to arrive as either people are still on vacation, or their kids are going back to school. And does that just get like caught on the bottom of a pile of mail? Do people who maybe are, you know, supporters of President Trump have doubts about, you know, whether it's a legitimate way to vote? I mean, who knows? There's Mm -hmm. just so much sort of in the stew right now that's so hard to really measure. Yeah. And I mean, look, we've seen this in a couple of special state assembly elections this year already. Just the fact that every voter gets a ballot by default does not necessarily mean you're going to end up with 2020 levels of turnout. That's there was a lot more than universal vote by mail that was contributing to historic levels of turnout than than 2020. I guess before we uh, jump into our into our interview, we should talk about a couple of the candidates. who. Yeah. uh, Minute left here, guy. Give me the lowdown. Ted Gaines, Larry Elder. Who are these folks? Why are they running? You know, I think to me, it really epitomizes kind of the two camps of candidates we've seen get into the recall race. Uh, Gaines, honestly, you know, former state senator, he's on the board of equalization. I could make the argument that he's had the biggest victory of any Republican candidate in this race. He won a, a board of equalization seat. Most people mm-hmm. are wondering, what is that even? They they oversee some tax assessments. But, you know, he got a million and a half votes for that. His district runs the length of the state. People have probably seen his name on a ballot but yet he has 5,000 Twitter followers. I'm not sure you stopped someone yeah. on the street. Well, yeah. They, and know he's, who, they know who Ted Gaines is. Right. And he's a more traditional kind of anti-tax Republican, I think, you know, cut from the, the older, the the more traditional cloth, really, right? Right. Um, Larry Elder, on the other hand, this is a Southern California kind of radio personality. Uh, Stephen Miller, the Trump advisor, is a protege of his. Um, he's definitely going to make some waves, I would think, in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. And, and using this imperfect metric again, he has 880 85,000 Twitter followers, Larry Elder. He has a national platform. He's on Fox News all the time, um, but yet he hasn't run for office before. In fact, he talked to our colleague Scott Schaefer and said he uh, his last run was in fifth grade when he won three out of four rows in his classroom. Um, so, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see how those candidates do. And more importantly, which voters they attract to question one, which is the yes or no on the recall. What do each of these uh, replacement, potential replacement candidates bring to that first question? Absolutely. All right. Well, more time in the coming weeks to chew over this. We're going to take a short break for now. And when we return, we'll be joined by Republican Assemblywoman Suzette martinez Valadares. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos, here today with guest host Guy Marzarati. Scott Schaefer will be back next week. Today on The Breakdown, we are thrilled to have Suzette Martinez-Valadares here. She is Republican Assemblywoman representing California's 38th District, which is located kind of in the northeast part of the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles County. Assemblywoman, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you so much for having me, Marisa and Guy. Great to see you. Yeah, we're really excited. Um, and I should say, you and I first met a couple months ago. Uh, I was moderating a forum you were part of, and <laughs> you made a joke when I introduced you then that you know you're like I'm kind of a rare species, like a Latina GOP uh, woman. Um, talk about what what is that like? Why? I mean, that seems like something you might have said to kind of. Uh, to get at maybe some stereotypes or, or some pushback you might get sometimes. Yeah. I mean, well, absolutely. And, but it is a bit of a reality. I'm the only Republican Hispanic woman or actually the only Republican Hispanic in the entire state assembly. Um, I, it's a big responsibility. I'm, you know, proud to be here to kind of carry that, you know, banner, but we need more. Um, but I, so, so for me, it's, it's kind I, I call myself like a little bit of a unicorn, but I think we're we have a growing party, but we need our elected officials need to reflect who the growing party are as well. So um, it's it's something that I am working on helping to elect other Hispanic Latinos as well. So we always like to ask our guests about their family. And we want to start with you and your grandparents. We know your grandmother or grandfather worked alongside Cesar Chavez. Tell us a little bit about him and his story. Yeah, so it's actually my grandmother that worked oh. alongside Cesar Chavez. My um, family on my dad's side first came to California um, from Mexico in 1911 and 1917. And they came to Kern County. So uh, my grandparents were born in Arvin. Um, my grandmother was born in Arvin in Bakersfield. And my grandfather in Georgia, um, Bakersfield as well, Kerr County. And my dad was born there too. So my grandmother, you know, was one of 11 daughters. Um, so huge. I have a huge family in, in, in Bakersfield. But every one of my aunts worked in the fields in the Central Valley. Um, and while my um, my grandmother grew up working in every, my grandfather, my great grandfather was a foreman and took all of his daughters to work with him um, when they were of age. Uh, and my grandmother worked next to Cesar Chavez um, in a great um, uh, a vineyard. So she, I mean, she passed away in 2009, but she would tell me about, you know, those days when working in the field, um, she would be 
eventually my grandfather, who she married, they moved to the San Fernando Valley. Um, and she was a stay at home um, mother and my grandfather worked for flood control and my grandparents sent my dad home every summer to work in the fields in Bakersfield. So um, hard work is, is by no means foreign to my family. Um, I have never had to work. in. The I was going to say you escaped that. <laughs> I did. Finally, it only took, you know, four generations. <laughs> what? I mean, I was interested that you named Cesar Chavez in your bio because he's often sort of held up as a hero on the left. Uh, why yeah. Why make that connection? And are there things that you've brought from her experience and, and yeah. that sort of legacy to your politics? Yeah, I think it's one, it's just a part of my family history, one. Um, and two, there's this, I think there is this misconception that Republicans don't support labor and labor unions specifically. And for me and for my family, the stories that my dad and my grandparents would tell me of the working conditions, you know, 50, 60 years ago were really severe. And there was a need for the labor movement um, and that Cesar Chavez, you know, led. Um, and you're absolutely right. It, you know, the left does kind of own that history, but it's a part of my history too. And for me, I think that they're there is opportunity um, for more Republicans to engage and you know come to the table with labor, and that's what I want to do. So it's important important for me um, to tell that story. My mom also was a lifelong Democrat. Um, she was an SCIU union leader um, oh, wow. as well. So labor is a part of my history, um, and I want people to know that even though I'm a Republican, I'm open to have the conversation and let's you know. Um, come together. And so I saw this week that you brought forward a resolution to honor Nancy Reagan, uh, former first lady in the state assembly. I think the Reagan library is within the boundaries of of your district. Um, You mentioned your mom was a Democrat, but were the Reagans popular in your household growing up? Yeah, you know, my parents were not very political at all, by any means. Um, My mom's side of the family, um, they were, she was raised Catholic and they were JFK Democrats. When um, Kennedy was elected, it was a big thing for a lot of Latinos who were, are Catholic. Um, so that's kind of where they found their home at the time in the Democrat Party. Um, and But also my family in the 80s, you know, I have family from all over um, and family members that um, were appreci- appreciative of amnesty um, during the Reagan administration. Um, that really, you know, was important for many Latino and not just Latino families, but many immigrant families. Um, so for me, I grew up in the 80s um, and there's a lot I remember about the Reagan administration and this different, almost this different type of sentiment and positivity um, within the Republican Party at the time that was kind of part of my foundation. Um, Nancy Reagan, I brought um, forward this uh, resolution to honor the centennial birthday of Nancy Reagan, who was, you know, a woman who broke glass ceilings. She was influential, an influential woman. She had the ear of, you know, the president of the United States at, you know, some really critical times in American, a really critical time in American history, Um, whether it was a just say no campaign, which I remember, you know, learning, I remember that campaign. I remember D.A.R.E., um, I, I remember, as a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago, I, I don't even know how I stumbled upon a Punky Brewster, but it, the episode was about drugs. And that resonated with me in the 80s, where when I was offered drugs at a young age, I didn't take it. I just said no. And I felt comfortable like it was the right thing to do. But I had friends and family that didn't just say no. You know, drugs and addiction were a huge you know, problem. And there's actually... Um, um, 
um, research that says from 1980 to 1990, we did have this huge reduction in drug use. So um, I, I, I wanted to recognize her life and things um, like this that she did, and was, which is why I brought forward the resolution uh, last Monday. I mean, to be fair, though, that is a complicated legacy, too, right? There's a lot of mass You got some pushback. Got some pushback of, on the resolution. <laughs> yeah, and you got a lot of pushback, which I, I don't know if you were surprised by it. But I mean, that, the AIDS crisis, I mean, there's a lot in California that I think is complicated about both of the Reagan's legacy. Um, and, and so I, I guess, or were you surprised by the pushback? Did you expect that? Like, Well, so we knew that, so the, originally the bill was going to be on consent, we actually, you know, it was pulled off a of consent. So we knew there was going to, I knew that there was going to be some pushback. I was a little surprised with the falsehoods that were mentioned um, about, you know, the AIDS epidemic and Nancy's role, as well as the Just Say No campaign, which have proven to be effective. Um, Nancy was, you know, influential at a really, um, you know, strange time when we had no idea what AIDS was. Um, we knew the communities it was predominantly affecting. She, Nancy pushed her husband to appoint an openly gay medical expert, um, Frank Lilly, on, you know, uh, to appoint him. So she was very friendly to the LGBT com- community when it wasn't popular to be friendly to the LGBTQ community. So for me, like those were falsehoods. And you're absolutely right. Like the Reagans were controversial, but recognizing a centennial and all of the great things she did um, didn't need to be partisan. And I think that's what was most frustrating about it. And yeah, we can go on a lot more about Nancy Reagan's legacy. In fact, Scott and Marisa uh, did go on a lot more in a recent episode with Karen Tumulty, who wrote a biography about Nancy Reagan. So check that out in your feed. But I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned family members with addiction issues. You've been open about the fact that your brother was battled addiction for more than 10 years. You've said he would steal things, try to sell them back to you and other members of the family. How does that inform how you view this debate happening right now about how to deal with a lot of low-level crimes like theft, where there are addiction issues involved in a lot of cases? Yeah, I definitely think I'm unique to the legislature because I have, you know, the experience of addiction, um, drugs, crime, um, gangs that have deeply impacted my my family. Um, so, my brother, as you mentioned, um, it does. I I am not, you know. I think we have a horrible um, drug addiction problem going crisis going on in our communities, in our state, you know, across the nation, really. Um, for me, I we need to push uh, more aggressively for resources um, for rehabilitation and we need policy fixes um, for this because I've seen it. I've seen um, the impact it's had on my family. I remember, as you mentioned, my brother coming into my room and being like, do you want to buy this Palm Pilot? I'm like, I don't need a Palm Pilot. It wasn't connecting for me at the moment that he was trying to hawk things and stealing things um, to, and having wanting me to buy it so he could go buy drugs or, you know, my new shoes disappearing from my room or just various things that are signs of a drug addiction. Um, and then I remember the very violent aspects of it too, when there are, you know, coming down from their high and just wanting more. And, you know, the things that you'll do to your family hurt, cheat, you know, that steal um, for this addiction. Um, that needs to be helped medically and we are not doing nearly enough. Um, so I love, it's not easy, but I do love sharing this story. 
I love that I've had this experience because we need more real life experience in the legislature so that we can actually address um, the policy that needs to change. I mean, how do you think about that? Because I feel like we're at this really interesting moment. I've been covering criminal justice and the reforms of the past 10 years, and there's a lot of pushback happening, and it's become a very partisan thing. It seems like it's going to be a huge part of this 22 election. Um, But, you know, it sounds like you know that treatment, I mean, jail is not treatment necessarily. um, And that is not necessarily in line with a lot of the rhetoric coming from the right. I mean, when you look at where we're at with all of this, and you said we need more resources, what are you talking about? What does that look like? Right. So I would say that one, um, it's, it's, it's multi, it's, it's, there are so many different layers of you know criminal justice reform, um, whether the, it's the education component. You know, California we're 46th in the nation when it comes to quality education. Um, in our poorer communities, like the communities that I grew up in, um, a lot of my old schools are now charter schools, and they're charter schools because parents um, were tired of sending their kids to failing schools at LAUSD and wanted um, to take another approach. Um, so whether it's ensuring that, you know, the best thing that we can do, one of the best things we can do, and I, I learned this and advocated for this because I'm an early learning professional, and we know that those who go to preschool are less likely to go into gangs, to go into prison, all that. So this is, a, you know, we, we know that education, having a quality education is part of ending that, you know, school to prison pipeline. Um, and we're not doing that as effectively as we should be. We I think we've presented some really good bills. I um was a joint author on Assembly Bill 22, um, which would expand um, transitional kindergarten, which is huge. Um, I've been fighting for access to universal preschool for over a decade. So to accomplish this in my first year was a big deal. Um, and for me, that's one aspect is education. The other thing is we, we went really hard on crime in the 90s. And we went too hard, right? And the, I feel like the pendulum has swung you know, so far left that now we're super soft on crime. And whether it's, you know, um, Proposition 47 or 57, and I mean, go to your local Walmart, right? I I don't know if you guys noticed like three or four years ago, they started putting every, all of, you know, the toiletries behind, you know, lock and key um, because of how high theft has has, um, started. So for um, grocery stores, Walmart, Target, you can walk into that store and still up to $900 worth of merchandise. And they're not going to even really, you know, do anything about it. Then you're not going to get a citation. Like, and that's because of policy, right? So we've come so far, right? We need to come back and balance this because it's not good for business. It's not good for communities. It's part of the reason why um, we have this growing, um, it, it's feeding drug addiction as well. Um, so there's, uh, we could probably talk about this for a long time. Yeah. There's a lot of- <laughs> but I mean, I am curious about this, how you see this politically, because as you state, the voters of California have been pretty clear over the last decade wanting more criminal justice reforms. Even just last November, uh, voters rejected Proposition 20, which would have rolled back a lot of those reforms and added penalties for for things like shoplifting, repeat offenses. So how do you view that? Do you think, you know, things have really changed between November 2020 and now? Are you saying more fundamentally, maybe voters have been wrong on this? Right. So for me, I represent my community. And in my community, I know that um, crime is on the rise. Um, In Los Angeles County and LA City, crime is on the rise. Um, Murder rate is up. Um, And we have a new DA um, who um, 
I think I read this morning that over 56,000 cases have been, I'm sorry, 5,600, not 56,000, 5,600 cases referred to the GA um, by the LA County Sheriff's Department have been rejected. Um, in my community, I think that people want balance. They want, you know, criminal justice reform, but they also want to make sure that they have safe streets and safe neighborhoods. Um, they want, you know, they don't want to walk down the street and see filthy, you know, streets with tents and trailers. So people are looking for balance and that's what my community wants. Um, as a whole, California, I think, you know, is is starting to move in this needing balance direction. I mean, look at LA City Council, who is now pushing to actually do something about cleaning, you know, the home cleaning up the homeless um, problem and trash. You mentioned this balance approach. You're also one of the members who's part of this new Problem Solvers Caucus uh, within the legislature. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the you know, ultimate goals of that group and then specifically on the issue of child care. This is something you have personal experience in. Um, it's interesting to note you are a Republican who is supporting these kind of expansions uh, of child care universally or, and universal TK. Um, is that an area where maybe there can be more participation across the aisle? She's like, thank God we got off. <laughs> Something I want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, no, I enjoy all of our conversations, all of our, all of our issues we talk about. Um, so, yeah, I'm a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus. And for those of you listening who don't know what that is, we are five Republicans. We are five Democrats and one uh, independent um, from both houses of the legislature. Um, and really um, aimed at... We understand that, especially in Sacramento, partisanship exists, but we're trying to look at some of California's biggest issues um, through a nonpartisan lens. Yes, we understand we still have to you know, play and maneuver in the politics of it, but let's look at some of our biggest issues and just look at what good policy is. Um, so that's kind of who we are and what we want to do and what we're focused on. It was a really natural um it for me. So I come from the nonprofit realm. I'm former executive director at Autism Speaks. I um, worked in the nonprofit realm advocating for early childhood education. I ran a nonprofit, a small nonprofit preschool. Um, and in all of my professional experience, you know, I've addressed some really big issues like autism or early learning. And from a nonpartisan perspective, I've always been a Republican. I'm a fiscal conservative. Um, but when I'm work when I, in my professional career i've identified community stake i've identified an issue community stakeholders talked about you know how we solve it and executed so this for me this caucus does that same thing but in the legislature maybe it may be a great experiment experiment <laughs> and we're going to be actually having um a, our, our first retreat in the next um couple of months to really dig into like how what policy what policy issues we want to take up and really start to be more forceful on that because we're new you know we just adopted bylaws like maybe three months ago um but i'm excited about its potential um all right before we, we just have a few questions and i know we got to let you go but you mentioned um education was a big issue i know you took over the nonprofit after your mother passed away that she ran which was faith-based education um and you have a young daughter as well i'm just curious like we've done a lot of interviews over the years with folks who preceded you in sacramento jackie spear comes to mind you know when she was there she was like i think the first woman to give birth as a as a sitting member of the legislature um what has it been like for you as a mom of a young child and what more progress do you think needs to happen to support yeah. members like yourself? 
So one of the first things, so yes, I have a four-year-old daughter. Her name um, is Charlotte. Um, she's four going on 16, possibly 20. <laughs> um, she's very sassy. I don't know where she gets it from. Uh, no idea. No idea. <laughs> no idea. Um, one of the first things that I did when I was elected is I called um, Blanca Rubio and some of the other moms, you know, Autumn Burke. And I said, you know, can you just give me any advice? Um, she, you know, Charlotte's four. So she's not in, she's not of school age just yet. Um, so I had to kind of, you know, start, I started leaning on the experience of these other moms in the legislature. And one of the things right away was they're like, we've been fighting, you know, for really basic things like, you know, um, car seats and, you know, uh, available because the assembly sergeants will pick you up from the airport. And if you have your kid, like you need a car seat, like, you know, things that um, this legislature um, has been predominantly ran and by elected males. Um, so having these needs um, for moms hasn't been a priority, but I think there are more moms in the legislature now. Um, so it's there are those before me that have made that have come before me that have made it slightly easier, but it's not easy. I mean, I'm away from my daughter um, three nights a week. We FaceTime every night. So I still do bedtime stories and routine with her, um, but it's not easy. It's a sacrifice. But I also think that I'm showing her that she can do anything and, you know, if you, she can do anything, we can do anything as a family. Um, and, you know, I think she, she, I brought her for the first time here. There's might be some pictures on my website from, of her on the assembly floor, but she walks into the building and she's like, mommy, you work here. It's beautiful. This is amazing. So there are those moments that are really special for me as a young mom. And then I'll, I'll just leave you with this is we need to elect more women and we need to elect more moms. If we want the policies and the experiences that drive those policies um, to help better the lives of moms and families, then we need more moms up here. I am my number in the state assembly of women elected to the state assembly is 171 out of nearly 4,000 um, elected officials. So 171. We need more women. We need more moms. Uh, Assemblyman Valadares, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm going to be off the next two weeks, but you'll be in good hands with our team here, including my rad guest host and producer, Guy Marzarati. Along with our engineer, Katie McMurrin, KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tobin Lindsay, Vinny Tong, Otis Taylor Jr., and Erica Aguilar. I'm Guy Marzarati. You can see what I'm up to on Twitter. I'm at Guy Marzarati. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter at MLagos. But I won't be tweeting the next two weeks. Happy summer! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.